Father, we give you thanks for the deep, deep love of Jesus. May the love of Christ be evident in our minds, in our lives, and in your word. That we would hear and understand. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Please be seated. In the year 155 A.D., persecution broke out against the church in Asia Minor, specifically in Smyrna, now current-day Turkey. Believers were being fed to the beasts in the arena and burned alive. And, and as, the, as the persecution began to grow, the persecutors called for the leader of the Christians. And so they went and they found a man by the name of Polycarp and they arrested him and and brought him before, before the people. Polycarp was uh, actually one of the disciples of the Apostle John. He was an elderly man and a great leader, highly respected in the church. He came before those who were persecuting the church, before the government, and they began to try to convince him to recant his faith, and he refused to do so. Eventually, they brought him to the arena and threatened him with all kinds of persecution, but he would not recant. And eventually, he was burned at the stake. His story was told not only in that area, but throughout all of of the world. And Christians gained great strength from it. And the traditional date for his execution was 1,853 years ago yesterday. And his story that, that inspired the church almost 2,000 years ago continued to inspire the church through the centuries. As the Christians facing martyrdom and persecution attempted to figure out how to respond... We're still trying to figure out how to respond to persecution and opposition even today. We tremble at stories like Polycarp's. And and yet we know that many of our brothers and sisters in places of the world are threatened every day with violence simply because they follow Jesus. Many Christians live in an environment where the enemies of Jesus wave guns and rattle swords as an attempt to intimidate them. And in their setting, you have to wonder what it means to be the people of God. You have to wonder how a Christian responds to this kind of pressure and opposition because of Jesus. And yet even in this country, where we rarely, if ever, face that kind of violent opposition, we still live in a world where people oppose Christ and, and oppose his people. It wasn't that many years ago that Ted Turner made the comments that Christianity is a religion for losers. The Christians were a bunch of, of bozos and idiots. It wasn't long after that that Jesse Ventura, then the governor of Minnesota, remarked that organized religion is a sham and a crutch for weak-minded people. 
And over the past 12 months or so, atheist authors, according to the Wall Street Journal, have created a publishing sensation selling more than a million books. Richard Dawkins, The God Delusion. Christopher Hitchens, God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything. Sam Harris, Letter to a Christian Nation. Daniel Dennett, Breaking the Spell, Religion is a Natural Phenomenon. Victor Stenger's God, The Failed Hypothesis. How science shows that God does not exist. Their words are, are, are biting and disturbing. Hitchens declares many of the teachings of Christianity are, as well as being incredible and mythical, immoral. And Richard Dawkins suggests that believers should just shut up. In December, the Golden Compass, a movie in the sort of in the spirit of the Chronicles of Narnia that targeted children, was released. And in this movie, the primary purpose of the hero is to kill God. And we're opposed in other ways as well. We are often politely ignored in many academic settings. We're caricatured on television and in movies. We're condemned in government and other areas of decision-making if our faith in Christ has any bearing on how we lead or how we serve, how we live. And in the face of this opposition, in the reality of a world living in often antithetical to Christ, how do we, Christ people, respond? How do we respond in a way that pleases God, that brings glory to God, that advances the plan and the purpose of God. And to do that in a way that God desires. I suspect that perhaps on a a less cognitive level that this is exactly the question that the disciples are asking as the scene in the Garden of Gethsemane unfolds. This scene in which Jesus is betrayed, arrested, led to trial, and crucified. They're wondering, how do we respond? Faced with a mob coming after Jesus, what are the disciples to do? As opposition mounts, the question cannot be ignored. It's the question that we often ask ourselves. Am I willing to fight for Jesus? And if so, how do I do that? What does that look like? And when opposition comes, our, our most natural human response is self-preservation. It's hard not to think of that. that. That's our natural inclination. And our self-preserving instinct typically leads us to a couple of alternatives. Either fight or flight. Put yourself in a, for a moment in the shoes of the disciples. It's late. They're tired. Their senses aren't real sharp. They've just woken up from an hour nap. They, they have watched, they watch with curiosity as, as their fellow disciple, their friend, comes to greet Jesus. And their curiosity turns to horror as they realize that this kiss of friendship is really a kiss of betrayal. And on top of all of that, Jesus has just reprimanded them three times for sleeping instead of supporting him. So they are ready to show Jesus they're with him. 
And I suspect with not a lot of thought, Peter, as the other gospel writers tell us, and perhaps as the unspoken representative of the other ten, takes out his sword and swings it. Now, you have to give Peter some credit for at least doing something. At least not cowering in fear. He sees his master in trouble and, and the reality of the situation and its consequences are beginning to dawn on him. And so he swings. And there's actually something of, of honor in that impetuous act. And sometimes our defense of Jesus feels like we're honoring him too. What kinds of ways do, do we fight to defend Jesus? Now, we hopefully don't swing swords, though that certainly has happened through the centuries. In our culture, we tend to picket, to confront people who are against Jesus. We protest, we boycott, we contact the media so that everyone will know how we're being mistreated. We take people to court. And there's certainly a place for standing up for what's right. There's a place for being a voice for people who don't have a voice. There's a place for, for making known the atrocities, the injustices, the corruption against people and against Christ and his church. But too often, that's our first line of attack. And it becomes just that, a line of attack. We start a war. We start a take-no-prisoners kind of war against the world. And in this war, one of the problems is that we tend to be more concerned about people getting on our side than about trying to turn people to Jesus. And because we're concerned about winning the battle, we often resort to the same strategies that others use. Maybe we stretch the truth a little bit to make our point. Or we exaggerate the problem so that people will see how bad it is. We talk endlessly about the pain. We paint the bleakest picture possible so that people will say, hey, we've got to do something and come on our side. And we end up using the same strategy against our enemies that our enemies use against us. And we fight and battle and swing our swords. And all the while, Jesus is shaking his head and telling us, Put it away. That's not how things are done in my kingdom. Some of us battle with our words, debates and arguments. And there's certainly a place for, for having debates and arguments. The church has a, a need for clearly and concisely stating what we believe. We need to know what we believe. And sometimes it's appropriate to talk with other people and to discuss with them, even to debate with them about what we believe. But Paul cautions the church about thinking that problems will really be resolved with arguments. He tells Timothy, don't get involved in foolish, ignorant arguments that only start fights. He tells Titus, avoid foolish controversies and arguments and quarrels because they're unprofitable and useless. Now, is there a place for those things? Certainly. But we seem to get a picture from Jesus that they're not the most productive way 
to defend him. Have you ever noticed how seldom Jesus argues with people in the Gospels? He debates with the religious leaders every so often. He has a brief discussion with Pilate about truth, but not much else. And the problem is that when we use the strategies of the world as the strategies of the kingdom, we need to be really careful. But for some of us, the problem isn't being too aggressive. It's being, it's being not aggressive enough. And we discover that our fears drive us not to fight, but to flight. So often we're motivated by fear. Our fear leads us to, to hide our faith, to try to be secret Christians. And when things get tough, we run. We're so concerned about being accepted by the world, about being left alone in the world, about fitting in with the world that we sometimes try to disguise our relationship with Christ. Now, there's certainly a place for discretion. I mean, we understand persecuted Christians who flee to a safe haven, who live and worship underground. In fact, we encourage them and we pray for them as they make those decisions and we support them in them. But truthfully for us, it's, it's really about safety from harm. Most of the time for us, it's, it's about self-preservation. For us, most of the time, it's an unwillingness to stand tall for Christ when we really want to run. You look at the disciples and... And Peter tries to fight, and that doesn't seem to work. And they realize that Jesus isn't going to fight. And I think they feel the only recourse they have is to flee. And eventually, they all run. Even this young man at the end of the story, who runs away naked, leaving his garment behind. Scholars have been scratching their heads for centuries to figure out who this is and why the story is included. And no one really knows. There's a lot of supposition that maybe it's Mark himself and, and it's his way of describing him at the scene without actually naming himself. There are all kinds of theories. And we don't know why this account is included, but maybe, maybe mentioning him is Mark's way of giving us a picture of exactly how deserted Jesus was. That when things got tough, when they realized that Jesus wasn't going to fight, they all ran, and it mean all of them ran. It was every man for himself. Even at the risk of losing a valuable garment, even at the risk of being embarrassed at running through the streets of Jerusalem naked, when it's time to run, you run. No price is too high in order to get away from those who are pursuing Jesus. Even though it means leaving Jesus alone. I think that the disciples are, are probably very confused. Peter stands up for Jesus and Jesus rebukes him. And on top of that, he reaches down and he heals the guy's ear. 
That's not how you win battles. That's how you get run over. That's how you get arrested. That's how you get killed. On the one hand, you can't really blame the disciples for being confused. Their entire history as a people is about going into battle as the underdog and winning. And they're certainly the underdog here. A dozen of them versus this mob. But that's their history. Israel, Jericho. Gideon and his ragtag army of 300 unarmed men. David and Goliath the Maccabees in the, in the stories of the t- between the Testaments. And in the Old Testament history, whenever the Israelite army flees from a battle, it's a sign of defeat, as it is in the passage we read a few moments ago about the battle at Ai. And the reason they're defeated is because they've sinned against God. And anytime Israel is fleeing from a battle, it's because they've sinned against God and they're losing. No wonder they're trained to fight. But when they discover Jesus isn't going to fight, they run. And it's not a coincidence that they wait, that the people wait until this moment to arrest Jesus. You know, as he says, they could have done it at any time. He was in the temple worshiping freely, no one around. He didn't have bodyguards to protect him. They could have arrested him anytime, but they don't. Probably for two reasons. One, because they're afraid of the crowd. The city is teeming with pilgrims who've come for the Passover. Many of them very favorable to Jesus. Many of them probably from the northern region, Galilee, where Jesus is from. And they're afraid of a riot. And the other reason is because Jesus is afraid of a riot. Jesus doesn't want a riot either. He doesn't want the people coming to his aid and protecting him and keeping this from happening. This is why he's come. He has no intention of being rescued. Jesus has come to die and nothing is going to prevent that. And as that begins to dawn on the disciples... They run. And we're left with the question, what do we do? I mean, it's clear the disciples' decision to fight is the wrong one. It's clear their decision to flee is the wrong one. We're told they desert Christ, not a positive word. But if fighting is wrong and running is wrong, what could the disciples have done differently? If they're wrong to fight back, and if they're wrong to run away, what's the right thing? What was Jesus expecting from them? What should they have done? I think that Jesus is looking for them to do what he does. To surrender to the plan of God. I get uncomfortable when I hear... Christians talk about our rights, whether it's individually or corporately. We talk about our right to worship any way we desire to do so. We talk about our right to express our opinion about anything and everything. And and we have the right to any way we choose to do that. We have the right to, to do whatever we want to do in this world as Christians. And I'm not arguing that those rights are important and they're good and we and we value them. But Jesus seems to be telling us in this story and many other stories and certainly in the cross that those who follow him 
give up their rights for the glory of God and for the witness of the gospel, even if it means our agenda is lost and our desires are never realized and our expectations are not fulfilled. And that is a hard calling. Our natural tendency is to think about ourselves and protect ourselves, not deny ourselves. We don't like to surrender. We certainly don't like to admit defeat. We have a lot more respect for for a team that despite losing, even losing badly, doesn't give up. We like to see that drive that, that they keep trying and pushing and fighting, even though the outcome of the game may no longer be in doubt. There's something of integrity in that. We respect a vocalist or a cellist or an, an actress who, who keeps on going even when they hit a wrong note or struggle emotionally or forget lines or blocking. There's something of strength that we see in a person who refuses to run off the stage when things don't go so well. And certainly we admire soldiers who don't surrender. The histories of our nations are built on the stories of those who refuse to say defeat on the battlefield. We tell their stories in our classrooms, in our homes, and, and in our theaters. We remember with great fondness people like Winston Churchill and his great speeches about never giving in. We remember his speech of during the Second World War of June 4th, 1940, when he declared, we shall go on to the end and we shall fight in France and we shall fight on the seas and the oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. And that's what nations are supposed to do. And we certainly value our religious history of people who refuse to give up and give in. There are heroes. But those people in, our, in the history of the faith who didn't give up and didn't give in were people who surrendered to Christ. It wasn't because they wielded a sword for Christ. It was because they surrendered to Christ. Polycarp was burned at the stake not because he took up a sword and became a hero by fighting and killing people, by defending himself, but by surrendering to Christ and being willing to die. Does that mean that Christians never run from danger? No, there are times when when God's plan is to get away from the danger. Luke 4 tells us of an instance when Jesus is preaching in Galilee at the beginning of his ministry and the people are so upset about what he has to say, they, they drive him to a cliff and they're going to throw him off, but it's not time. And he walks away and disappears. For most of his ministry, Jesus avoids Jerusalem because it's not time for him to, to be arrested. He, he stays away from that. And many times removing ourselves from danger is the right thing to do. But even when we do that... 
Do we make that decision because it's what God leads us to do? Not because we're just thinking about ourselves. It's about loving surrender. And Jesus says that's why he's allowing himself to be arrested. He surrenders to the plan of God. He tells his followers to back off because of the plan of God. He chooses not to fight back because of the plan of God. He chooses not to run because it's the plan of God. Could he have defeated them? With one, both hands tied behind his back. Could he have walked away and, and they wouldn't have been unable to do anything about it? In a moment. But he stays. Because his ultimate goal is the plan and the purpose of God. And he surrendered to that plan and purpose. It's interesting to me that when the great, mighty, powerful God chooses to reveal himself in the clearest, most profound way, it's through surrender. Paul writes about Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. And we remember that just before Paul describes Christ, he says, your mind should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. This is our calling. It's the wind blowing across the church. It's the focus of the cross. It's the heart of God's plan for redeeming the world. And it's an element that defines us as Christians. If God's plan of salvation is the surrender of his son, do you think his call on those who follow his son is going to be any different? But we don't respond with surrender out of the blue. We surrender in the difficult moments because we've surrendered to God in the calm moments. Just before this, this event, Jesus is in the garden praying and the disciples are in the garden sleeping. And when the opposition comes, you see the difference. And so even if God calls us to be someone who, who stands up and, and speaks words about the faith and, and even argues for the faith, we do it with the spirit of love and kindness and compassion and surrender to God. We refuse to use the strategies that all the rest of the world uses. But instead... We use the one strategy at our disposal that no one else has, and that's a surrender spirit to God. And it's only in that surrendered spirit that people will say there's something different about them. I suspect that Jesus is hoping that his disciples will stay with him and encourage him and be a source of strength for him. 
but they can't quite see it. And they run. I think Christ is calling each of us to be his presence, to be his hands and feet, and to be his people in this world. Surrender to God. But it goes against the strategy for victory that all the world uses. It goes against the grain of everything we're taught about winning. And what didn't make sense then to the disciples, but makes perfect sense to us now, doesn't make sense to us now in our lives. But it's the calling of God just as it was the calling on them. So as you strive to live for Christ in this world that opposes Christ, as you attempt to be the person of God that he calls you to be in a culture that that degrades Christ and his people, as you commit yourself to stand tall for Christ, what most accurately describes your strategy? Combative behavior? Running in fear? surrender to God's plan and to God's way. I'm convinced that our answer makes all the difference in the world. Please pray with me. Father, to whatever you have called us, wherever you lead us, make us people who are surrendered to you, surrendered to your plan of how to accomplish your purpose in this world. When it doesn't make sense, help us to trust you. When we want to use the strategies around us, help us to trust you. When we want to flee, help us to trust you. Father, give us grace and strength to live lives in this world. Surrender to you. Through Christ Jesus. Amen.